Hello and welcome back to the Sports Biomechanics Lecture Series, um, supported by the International Society of Biomechanics in Sports and sponsored by Vicon. I'm Stuart McCurlane Naylor from the University of Suffolk, and with me today I have Professor Gareth Irwin, who is Head of Sports Biomechanics at Cardiff Metropolitan University. He's former president of ISBS and his research interests include the interface between biomechanics and coaching, which he's going to talk about today. And his background as a former international gymnast, which I believe, if I'm not mistaken, includes competing at two Commonwealth Games, and um, according to the university website, and um, as a national um, gymnastics coach, also informs his research, which makes him the perfect person today to talk about the interface between biomechanics, coaching and motor control in gymnastics. So if you've got any questions for Gareth, then please, as we go along, leave them in the live chat and we'll circle back to those at the end. Um, but without further ado, I'll hand over to Gareth to tell us a little bit more. Thank you. Hey, thank you, Stuart. And um, <clears throat> I'd like to just thank you for organising these uh, these sessions. The ones that I've seen have been been a really high standard, and it's really nice to see um, this in place. And uh, I'd like to thank ISBS for inviting me to to give this talk as well. Um, so I'm going to talk about the coaching biomechanics interface, and I'm going to touch on a number of different topics. I'm going to talk about four main areas which includes motor control and gymnastics and how the concepts of motor control can inform some of the decisions we make about exercise selection, about understanding control and understanding technique. I'm going to look at this interface between biomechanics and coaching but with a specific reference to the training principles. We're also then going to go into the evolution of skill with a specific focus on the, the Ketchev on high bar. And then I'm also going to finish off with a little bit of insight into judging and the code of points and how potentially science and biomechanics can help inform some of the structures that are in place and really kind of open it up in terms of a potential research, research area. So in terms of motor control and gymnastics, um, let's start right at the beginning. And I apologize about going right back to the beginning, but let's look at what we mean by, by biomechanics. And it's two words, as we know, there's the biological aspect of it in terms of understanding the musculoskeletal and neuromuscular system. And then the mechanical part of it in terms of understanding the physics and the maths behind performance, about what makes up technique, about what, how we can influence apparatus, how can we influence tech, uh, uh, equipment design. And we know it's a huge area. We know that crash test biomechanics, animal biomechanics can give us huge insights into bipedal movement, for example, space space flight biomechanics so the science is, is 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 a huge area and human movement biomechanics which is what we're interested in related to sport is just part of that but we need to we need to remember when we look at improving performance and looking after our athletes in terms of preparing them nurturing them and developing them that we're doing that in a robust adaptive innovative way that they become self-aware and stable performers and stability is quite an important thing to understand and we'll come back to what the definition of that is a little bit later but ultimately we're trying to make training as safe and effective and efficient as possible 
And from a coaching perspective, we know the importance of an individualized approach to understanding performance and understanding technique. We know that there are three main categories that we must take into account when we look at how athletes, or in this case, how gymnasts create the techniques that they do to achieve the, the goal of the skill that they're trying to perform. And they fall into the categories of organism, environment, and task. Now, these three categories or constraints that are placed upon everybody have an interactive effect over the, the performer. So when you see a gymnast performing a skill like the Ketchev down in the bottom right-hand corner, you, we know that they have challenges in terms of the apparatus that they're using, in terms of the techniques that are available to them, and their morphological, physiological and psychological characteristics. So in terms of task, we have what are the effective techniques. In terms of the environment, we have what are the tactical awareness, what are decision-making um, opportunities, and what are the competitive and how does the competitive environment influence us? As well as from an organismic perspective, how does the physiological, psychological, and indeed sociological aspects influence our performance? Now, as you know, this model um, is from a guy called uh, Carl Newell, who I work with, uh, and for the, I've been working with him for about a decade now. And it emerged from the work from Kelso and Bernstein. Um, and it really talks about how athletes um, self-organize and technique emerges from these three interacting, interactive constraints. That self-organization emerges in terms of coordination, how the body's interacting with its, with the apparatus, how the joints are interacting with each other, variability and stability to achieve the movement goal. And in gymnastics, we know the movement goal is, is pretty set in terms of the international governing body telling you how the shapes and movement patterns of the skills need to, need to look. Understanding how the task, the organism and the environment interact really allows us to look at what are the most effective techniques for a certain individual. How can we understand injury risk and reduce injury risk? How can we use this information to develop skill and physical preparation? So this takes us back now to uh, uh, some of the first research that I did as a, as a PhD student. Um, and one of the papers that's linked below, I think, that Stuart's um, including in this uh, is it, it highlights this, this research, which was published in 2005. And what it does is it really explains how knowledge of biomechanics from a coaching perspective. So as, as a coach, how is that actually helpful? And what the research showed. So we did a big study where we interviewed all the coaches in Great Britain um, to try and identify how they use information. Where do they get their knowledge from was one of the first things. <laughs> but the other part was <clears throat> how do they use information to make decisions about progression development, skill selection and technique enhancement. And there were a number of things that, that we identified. There were four main themes. The first one were, were that coaches use progressions that they already know, and they modify those to the specific characteristics of the skill or the task they're trying to learn. All coaches come to a, a teaching or coaching environment with a certain level of coaching knowledge. It may be very small or it may be decades of experience, but there's some sort of coaching knowledge. What the study found was that 
a large proportion of this knowledge came from trial and error, mentor coaches, and that these were the main things, the main avenues that these, at the time, elite level coaches, they're still elite level coaches, um, obtained their knowledge from. All the coaches are also identified that they had a conceptual mental picture of the skill. And it was quite interesting because some coaches said that they saw skills in, in kind of a strobed picture. And some coaches looked at, had a movement, a slow motion movement of the image. So it was quite individual, but they all had a mental image of the skill. They all understood what they thought the skill should look like. And this was really facilitated by the observation of elite performers. And I think that's one of the massive changes in gymnastics at the moment that we've got access to seeing elite performers be performing techniques um, on places like YouTube. But interestingly, they also said or identified that biomechanics was something that allowed them to understand the skill. And when they talked about biomechanics, they talked about understanding at a very descriptive level in terms of what the shapes and what the movement patterns were that are required in order to be successful. And what we identified was from these four different themes, the coaches had a conceptual understanding of how skills work. And that conceptual understanding of when I go into a coaching environment and I understand how a long swing works or a cartwheel works or a Ketchev works, the accuracy of that, that information, allows me to make decisions about the techniques that are available. Understanding those techniques allows me to then say, how do I break this skill down into, into phases, logical phases? And what are the theories behind those phases? That's quite important. And how do I then use that information to, to understand the skill? So let's look at a very common skill in gymnastics. This is the long swing, it starts in the top left-hand corner, the gymnast rotates around the bar back to the handstand position again. We know from a coaching perspective that if I spoke to most coaches in gymnastics, they'd say the key part of this skill is what happens underneath the bar. As the gymnast moves from a position of an arch with their shoulders flexed and their hips extended to a position of a dish where their shoulders are extended and their hips are flexed. And this functional phase is really what drives the skill. We know from a biomechanical perspective and studies that we've done that the joint kinetics during this phase, the forces around the hips, the knees and the shoulders, and particularly the hips and the shoulders, provide the input of energy that allows the gymnast to create the angular momentum during the swinging phase. And that during this phase, 70% of the work is done in that arch to dish phase, in that functional phase. So it becomes very important if we understand what the key phases of skills are, we can understand what makes the skill work. And that's where knowledge of biomechanics really helps a coach. We can look at this even further in terms of the energetic analysis. We did this, me and Professor David Kerwin, back in 2006 and presented it at the um, ICEA conference in Munich and demonstrated that 70% of the work was done during this functional phase, this key phase, and that two thirds of that work was done by the shoulders. So understanding that from a physical preparation perspective now allows me to know that there's a certain phase, that there's a certain joint contributing to this skill. And this is how, how important it is. We also know that that phase moves as a function of the different types of skills that are produced. 
So we did a study in 2016 where we looked at the Ketchev skill and the Kovach skill, two complex release and regrass movements, and identified that this arch to disc position where at the top here uh, we have the Ketchev where the gymnast is in this huge arch position here, huge shoulder flexion, hip extension, and a much later position in the Kovach movement identifying that the functional phase is important, but it shifts around the bar dependent upon the angular momentum characteristics of the movement. So understanding the basic functional phase and then how it applies to more complex skills is a really useful thing. And then this leads to the probably the most important part of this model, this replication of the spatial and temporal characteristics of the final skill in the drills that you're using. And what this means is, from a coaching perspective, it means that we're applying the, the specificity of training principle, that we're trying to replicate the key characteristics, the shapes, the movement patterns, the coordination, the energy that occurs in the final skill in the drills that we're using. Where the key movements are, where the key timings are, from a motor control perspective, where the key relative phases are. So we did a, a number of studies and the papers are, are in the um, uh, uh, provided by Stuart um, where we examined the functional phase during this lot during the long swing. So the gymnast again starts in handstand rotates back to handstand where that functional phase is in terms of the hips and shoulders. And then replicated that or identified progressions based off what the coaches in during this study told us they used for developing the long swing on high bar to identify where these shapes and movement patterns were replicated in those drills. Not just the angular positions of the gymnast's shoulders and hips, but how those joints were interacting and also how the joint kinetics were interacting as well. And so we did this for, for a number of different chalk bar long swings progressions. And what that does is it allows us to develop preparatory activities and pathways of development that become more effective, efficient and safe. And it allows us to develop gymnastic skills and ultimately, oops, and ultimately increase our knowledge and understanding of the need for biomechanics within a coaching, um, a coaching model. And it's really where we started talking about this idea that you know, if you go back maybe 50 years, <clears throat> um, you, you have this idea of bridging the gap between science and practice. And it's been a, a huge issue with, with, um, within sports science. And what we're saying is that if we have an understanding, and I've demonstrated that bridging a gap with a bridge, you'll see that that is the seven bridge, which I'm not allowed to go over at the moment. But bridging that gap it's not just about bridging that gap, but it's an interface between understanding what the key characteristics of skills are, what is it that makes it work, and understanding what the coach then can focus on in terms of skill development, in terms of how gymnasts learn, and in terms of exercise selection. And it really does inform injury prevention, skill and technique selection, and as I said, physical preparation. It can also help in a number of other ways in terms of understanding the techniques of the understanding the technical characteristics of a skill that a coach will provide 
Correlating that with the biomechanical determinants of performance helps us in terms of feedback, in terms of providing meaningful information, and also drives technology development, where you have an interface between the technology, technology being used and the gymnast performance. Okay. So I'm going to move on to the uh, the third part of the talk, the, the evolution of skill and skill selection. And for that, I'm going to talk about a, um, a series of studies that we did. A series of studies that we did looking at data from a number of different international level competitions. And we worked with colleagues from the international governing body of gymnastics, the FIG, um, the IOC Medical Commission, European Gymnastics, as well as colleagues at the German University of Sport in Cologne, um, at the um, Leipzig University, and also Loughborough University. And we collected data across a number of world, world university ads, Olympic Games, World Championships, European Championships. And what this meant was that we were able to have highly ecologically valid data, data where we may only have one trial or one or two trials. So it's in terms of variability of practice, it's not great for, for that type of research, but understanding where people are in terms of at the best point in their training or the best point in their competition, it was very a very unique data set. Now, the skill that I've chosen to talk about is, is the Ketchev. And it's an interesting movement. For, for a number of reasons, two main reasons, I think. It's performed on the horizontal bar by men's gymnasts, men gymnasts, male gymnasts, and on the um, uneven parallel bars or the A-bars by female gymnasts. It's a fairly common skill. Um, it's also biomechanically a skill where the gymnast rotates around in one direction and at the point of release needs to be rotating in the other direction in order to recatch the bar again. So they have to somehow reverse their angular momentum during the upward phase in order for them to be successful. They have to allow that, use that angular momentum to create the right trajectory of their mass center to allow them to be in the right position and the right distance away from the bar to regrasp it. The other reason that it's interesting is that during the Soviet era of gymnastics, where um, the sport was used as a shopping window of the social and cultural ideals of the Soviet Union, all the sports scientists were brought together and they were asked to come up with skills that could potentially be performed. And the graph, the graph, the figure that you see here is by a Soviet scientist, a coach, methodologist, biomechanist called Smavlevsky, who came up with the Ketchev in 1969. And this is one of the original diagrams and you can see the gymnast rotating around the bar. So they used a, a series of techniques in terms of mathematical modeling in terms of understanding the physiological characteristics of the performer to make and create these skills. And it was performed in 1977 in the European Championships, I think, um, by the Russian gymnast called Alexander Ketchev. And then later that decade, um, going into the next decade by female gymnasts. So it's a kind of an example of where biomechanics went ahead of a sport and the sport then followed. In female gymnastics, though, it's become even more popular and it's became quite popular 
during a phase where the marking criteria changed and gymnasts were awarded more points for performing this skill. The apparatus changed in 1996. The distance between the top and the lower bar was 1.6 metres. And after the Olympics, it moved to about 1.8 metres. And you see often see coaches winding the bars out, tightening up the uprights to try and get more distance between those between those bars. And what happened was it allowed female gymnasts to swing more freely around the apparatus. And on the left hand side, you see a gymnast performing the old Ketchev. We'll call that one the outward Ketchev. And you can see as she swings from handstand, she misses the bar in the descending phase and then performs the Ketchev. On the right hand side, because the bars are wider now, the gymnast started to perform this inward facing Ketchev. So they miss the bar on the upward phase, then release the bar, fly over the bar on the right hand side and catch it again. And the question that we were being asked was, and we were asked this question by the international governing body and by various coaches across the world, what are the difference between these two skills? And also, can the inward version of this skill provide the gymnast with the opportunity to do more complex movements out of it? So can they be in the straight position that you saw the, the male gymnast doing? At this point in time, a straight catch hadn't been performed by a female. So it was kind of why is that? And, and can this new technique allow us to uh, allow us to uh, allow gymnasts to do that? So we collected data at a number of different Olympic Games and World Championships. Um, we used uh, 3D DLT. We calculated joint motions at the knees, hips and shoulders. Focusing on the hips and shoulders, we knew that that was a, as a major driving point for this skill. We and as we said before, 70 percent of this work is done during the hips and shoulder functional phases. And we also looked at the key release parameters of angle of release, velocity of release and angular momentum. So I'm going to put up a series of um, a series of tables now, the tables and this will kind of go on as we go to another type of catch-up in a minute. The tables will always be the same. The variables on the left hand side flight time, angle of release, horizontal velocity, vertical velocity, moment of inertia, angular velocity, and, and uh, angular momentum. You'll see that angular momentum is in straight somersaults per second. And this is a normalized method of representing angular momentum that allows us to compare between gymnasts of different shapes and sizes, as well as between males and females. So it's a very useful um, standardized way of, of uh, um, representing angular momentum and emerged out of the Loughborough um, University group. So let's have a look at the, the, these two, two skills. And first of all, let's go to the bottom and have a look at this angular momentum. The first thing to notice is the angular momentum during the old Ketchev, about minus 19.19, sorry, and of the inward Ketchev is nearly two thirds higher. So straight away, you can see that there's more angular momentum capacity performing the newer inward facing Ketchev. There's slightly more flight time. The vertical velocity is higher. The horizontal velocity is about the same, which you would expect because they still only got to travel a certain distance over the bar. Um, and 
Yeah, and 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 those are the two. Those are the main things. The angular momentum at the bottom is is is, is the key thing. The other thing that I was going to mention is that you can see that there's a negative sign by the um, angular momentum, and what this denotes is that the gymnast is now rotating in the other direction. So it would have been positive on the way down, and up to the point of release, it would have got more and more negative. And when they're in the air, the negative angular momentum would have been sustained until they hit the bar again, caught the bar again. And this is a nice visual of these two skills kind of happening at the same time. I'll let it run a couple of times so you can see it. And if I stop it at the right time, you can see the female gymnast. And I know this is only one gymnast and this is just a representation of it. But you can see that the female gymnast performing the outward version. This is this girl and, the, and this female gymnast here performing the inward version. She's clearly higher. She's more rotated in the air. And potentially straight away coaches start start to think well maybe i can change my body shape now in the air and change my moment of inertia i've got more angular momentum now so around about 2000 uh, this skill emerged another version of the ketchev a toe on ketchev and we we know that this is uh, became quite popular beth tweddle used to perform this exquisitely in her in her competition career and the same question emerges. How does this Ketchev provide female gymnasts with the opportunity to do a Ketchev in the straight position? So same set of data again. Now we've got the old outward, the new inward, and now even the newer toe on Ketchev. Same set of variables on the left-hand side. Let's put all the values up and let's look at the bottom again. Let's go straight to the bottom and have a look at the angular momentum characteristics in terms of the um, gymnast rotational capacity. And you can see there's the, the, the jump from outward to inward, and there's still a slight increase in terms of the toe on Ketchev. So maybe this is a good Ketchev to perform this straight version of the skill. And you can see that there's more flight time during this skill, and the vertical velocity is also higher. But really what, what the coaches and what the um, governing bodies wanted to know was, is the direction of the evolution of this skill from the, the inward to the, from the outward to the inward to the toe on Ketchev going to provide the female gymnast with the opportunity to do this skill, the straight Ketchev. And you can see that obviously during the aerial phase, angular momentum has to be quite high because he's going to be in this straight position. The distribution of his master in the aerial phase is high. He's got a high moment of inertia and consequently he's got to produce and generate enough rotational capacity to perform this skill. So what we did was we used our methods of normalization so we could compare between males and females. And we looked at all of the skills now and we looked at the outward, the inward, the toe on, the straddle and the straight Ketchev. So these, these two on the right-hand side are male performers and these three are the female gymnasts. Same table again, same set of variables, a lot of numbers. Let's go straight to the bottom and let's look at the angular momentum. And you can see if we go right over to here, the male performer performing a straight Ketchev is producing a, a huge amount of angular momentum in comparison to, for example, the outward version of this catcher, of this skill. 
but the female toe on and the male straddle aren't too different to each other. So the question is, if it's not strength and we didn't think it was strength, what is it about these, these skills that is preventing a female from performing this skill? Again, look at the flight times. The flight times are much higher for the, the male performing this skill. And as you would expect, a higher vertical velocity at takeoff. So what is it about the, the technique or the skill or the task that's, that's making these, these differences? Well, we'll come back to that in a, in a second. We also interestingly measured the work done at the shoulders and the hips during this, this skill. And what we found was at the hips, at the point of release, in all three of these female Ketchevs, the gymnasts were doing the same, the same thing. The gymnast was opening their hip angle, causing their hips to extend at the point of release. 90 80% of the work being done was being done in that direction. But if you look at the, what the shoulders were doing, during the inward Ketchev and during the toe-on Ketchev, 30% of the work was being done by the gymnast pulling and opening their shoulder angle. Whereas 30% of the work being done by the outward Ketchev was working in the other way. So in terms of understanding the physical characteristics of the skill and how to condition for this movement, these two Ketchevs are doing a completely different thing at the shoulder joint than these two Ketchevs. So one, one is opening the shoulder and the other one at the point of release is very quickly closing the shoulder. So one is an eccentric, potentially an eccentric contraction and one is potentially a concentric contraction. But we do know the movement patterns replicate that as well. So go back to that model of coaching, understanding the the technical requirements of the skill would allow us now to say, okay, from a physical preparation perspective, we know that these were the shapes and movement patterns um, that we need in order to be successful. And the the reason I've, I've got some confidence about that, we we had a, comp, a uh, we presented some of this to the British Gymnastics, um, maybe four or five years ago, um, with the national coaches at the time. And they were able to explain why they thought that was the case. And, and it really showed how understanding the mechanics of the skill and also understanding the coaching language of the skill allows us to drive the movement forward and, and, and help understand how we can make training more effective, efficient and safe. And then what happened in 2011 in Berlin at the uh, European Championships, we saw this skill. So it is possible. And this is one of the first times that we, we'd actually got a recording of it. And, and it's in terms of the shape in the air, it's a fantastic shape, very straight. She does get quite close to the bar. She does nearly knock her teeth out. But she is producing enough angular momentum to be able to, to perform this skill. So what is it? What's the limiting factor that is preventing female performers from performing this skill more often? Well, Let's just go back to the basics of gymnastics. Males perform on a tensile steel horizontal bar. The energy being put into the bar is returned very quickly back to the performer. It's a very stiff piece of apparatus. Females, they obviously have two bars, so they've got another bar to contend with, but they're swinging around a composite material of fiberglass and wood 
that's less stiff. And the energy being put into the bar, being returned, it's very different. So the female gymnast has to do more work. And the timing of the interaction of the gymnast and the bar really underpins how, how these gymnasts can be more successful. And it really highlights this environmental constraint because it is a constraint on the performer. The environment that the gymnasts are performing in has been changed. You could say, should the bar for the female gymnast be stiffer? Would that help gymnasts? But then you've got to think about body mass and gymnasts and that interaction of the apparatus. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute when I come on to the code of points and the differences between male and female performers. Okay, so we've talked a bit about motor control. We've defined biomechanics. Apologize about that again. We, uh, we've talked about the coach and biomechanics interface and how that links to the principles of training. And we've now talked about the evolution of skill, given a quick, quick example of the, of the Ketchev. I've included some links to some papers that are all biomechanics papers, not coaching papers at all. They're, they're really for biomechanists. Um, and included some others that you might find interesting that relate to Ketchev and gymnastics in particular. But let's move on to this judging idea and the, and the code of points. And, and, and as it underpins the sport so much, it's such an important area um, for us to have, a, have an idea of. Um, and one of, the, uh, one of the things that the international governing body uh, wanted to do um, a number of years ago was to challenge the idea of how similar males and male and female gymnasts were in terms of performing the same skill. So if a male performs a double tuck somersault on floor and a female performs a double tuck somersault on floor, are they the same? If, if you look at the code of points, one isn't always given the same value as the other. A double straight on floor for a female is awarded much more points than a double straight on front, on double straight back on floor for a, for a male. And um, that was the case when we did, did this, this study. Um, it, was a, uh, it was an important question. It was topical um, at the time. It was just after the 2004 Olympics. Um, and it really came to, to, the, to the start of the change in the coding, the code of points and the judging structure of gymnastics where we, we no longer have a 10. Um, it really underpinned the governing, governing body's code of points. Because ultimately what the system they wanted to have in place was a clear and transparent judging system that was clear for the participants, the coaches, the clinicians, and also for the public as well. Because I think one of the most important things is that the public are able to engage with the sport. So as we know in, in gymnastics, males and females do compete separately. They're physiologically and morphologically different but they compete on similar apparatus. The stiffness characteristics of the floor are the same for a 40 kilogram female compared to a 70 kilogram male. So the question that, was that we want to look at is when we compare the technique requirements of skill in terms of females and the technique requirements in terms of males, and then the physical demand between those two sexes, are they similar? So important, I put it up again. So the code of points. 
So the code of points is there in gymnastics to provide a standardized system of assessment. It's an objective means of evaluation. And ultimately, it ranks the performance from the best to the worst. And the review of the code of points happened at the IOC, um, at the IOC, at the FIG conference in Geneva, 2006. And when we, if, and to, to help with this, we need to understand where this code of points comes from. So the code of points, if you don't know, is a book, it's a book basically. Um, and I think there's a digital version now that has every skill in gymnastics. And it's ranked from A is the easiest right up to H now being the hardest skill. And each of those skills, A, B, C, D, is given a is given a mark, and you perform 10, 10 points, 10, 10 skills, and each one is given a mark. So you have 10, 10, 10 attempts to get the uh, the highest score you can. Judges, gymnasts, and medical practitioners and scientists all provide expert domain knowledge. They all give that information to the technical committees, and. At the forefront of all of this is safety and development considerations. The welfare of the athlete is put central in this process and the skills are classified based on a combination of all of these things. It changes every year, every four years as well. But let's look firstly at differences between males and male and female gymnasts from a physical characteristics perspective morphologically and we looked at a sample of data from 1994 and the 2000 olympic games and we can see that there is 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 a significant difference between males and females in terms of the the morphological characteristics just by simply looking at their mass and their height in the 2007 world championships we also collected some data and found staggeringly the lightest female gymnasts was 29 kilograms and the heaviest female gymnast I think was 56 kilograms but 29 kilograms um, which is may, may not be a problem at all it's it's her morph morphological characteristics of 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 her as a, as a performer the lightest male I believe was 52 kilograms and that went up to I think 76 kilograms in 2007 so it's just interesting to look at the, the spread of those masses of the performers and think about you know all of those females are competing on the same floor they're competing on the same vault in terms of the springiness of the top as their male counterparts so it, it becomes an interesting observation an interesting question to look at so i'm gonna i'm gonna uh as we know uh, these are the, the apparatus that the males and female gymnasts and in artistic gymnasts compete on. Females compete on floor, beam, vault, and bars, and males compete on floor, pommel, rings, vault, parallel bars, and high bar. And obviously, there's a similarity in terms of the floor and the vaulting apparatus. So I'm going to focus on, on floor for this and identify or show how potentially uh, biomechanics can um, be used to inform some of the comparisons between skills and the quantification of the, the code of points. Um, so in terms of apparatus, we know that the since the change in the vaulting horse became to a vaulting table, that 
the vaulting table now is about a meter square, slightly angled, a certain level of stiffness characteristic. Females vault on a on a um, one twenty five, one meters twenty five. I think I'm not one hundred percent sure though, but males is one hundred and thirty five. Um, and we compete on, and gymnasts compete on a twelve meter square um, sprung sprung floor. And this is the same for all masses and all um, and both genders. Um, and as we said, the similarities in terms of stiffness are different for the bars. And you know, and it, how that's quantified is is again an interesting question. But in terms of what makes critical biomechanical variables um, in terms of successful performance two uh, are probably uh, key and they're ones that we're going to focus on one is rotation and one is time in the air so how long have we got in the air and how much rotation have we got to perform the number of somersaults or the types of somersaults that we want to perform let's have a look at a takeoff for example this is a, a picture of Dragulescu those who, who recognize him taking off into a double tuck somersault and a double straight somersault. The, traje the, project the trajectory of the two somersaults is, is different in terms of one is going to horizontally move much further than the other. When we look at the actual figures, we can see the time in the air is about a second. The angle of takeoff is slightly more upright for a double tuck somersault. And the horizontal velocity is much higher in a double straight somersault. And we could talk about the mechanical characteristics of why this is the case, but that's not for that's not for now. Um, let's look at the takeoff of some other movements. For example, the, the Ketchev in male and female gymnasts, the time in the air, very similar, the angles, very similar, and the difference here being the vertical velocity at takeoff. And that vertical velocity at release gives that opportunity for the gymnast to create angular momentum and also create a higher, longer time in the air if necessary. Angular momentum is particularly important, our capacity to rotate. And angular momentum, as we know, during the aerial phase of any movement is set. It doesn't change. And we need a way of um, examining angular momentum between different people so we can normalize it, as I said before. And in order to do that, we calculate a thing called straight somersaults per second. So here we have an angular momentum profile of a performer performing a Ketchev. And here we have the angular momentum profile normalized. And as you can see, the normalization just changes the values. It doesn't change the profile at all. So <clears throat> let's look at the uh, let's look at the ranking of um, of skills on the floor exercise and, and we'll, we'll work through this. So on the left hand side here, you've got male performer, male code of points and you've got the double tuck back somersault, double pike back somersault and double layout somersault and the same in the females. And these images were taken from the code of points and. At the moment, these are worth the same. Both of them are C, a C value up here. Point three you'll get for doing that skill. If a male does a double pike in this position where his hips are completely folded, he'll get a C and a female will get a D. If a male does a double straight, he'll get a D and a female will get an F. So she'll get significantly more points for doing this skill. 
And the question is, is that fair? I think if you talk to coaches, you'd say, yeah, female gymnasts have to are, are, are battling against, you know, less muscle mass than a male and also having to interact with an apparatus that's that's the same stiffness as, as a male male performing. So they, you know, you could argue that that's right just from a kind of qualitative perspective. But let's look at the flight time of these skills. When you look at the flight time, the flight time between males and females, it's a little bit, little bit more in males, but not, not, not massively. So during a double tuck and during a double straight, the male performer has much more flight time in the air. So you could say, well, yeah, it's actually going to be easier for a male to perform this skill because he's got more flight time. He's able to generate more flight time. But let's look at the angular momentum. If Who can cre create the more angular momentum? Well, in terms of the double tuck and the double pike, there's around about 1.1 somersaults per second to 1.2 somersaults per second. So they're very similar. So you could say, well, a female doing a double pike and a male doing a double pike are probably similar. And when you look at the angular momentum characteristics of a male and a female performing a double layout somersault, the differences aren't as great as one might expect. So if you looked at the skill score and you said this, so the skill score is the, is the product of the flight time and the angular momentum. And this is our idea of maybe we can use this to rank different skills. You would see that the male gymnast is higher than the female gymnast. So what that means is that when the skill score is produced, when the gymnast performs this skill, it's actually not that much more difficult for a female performer to perform this skill. So let's look across the um, across the different movements. And I think we can only really interpret this skill score when we look at the, the difference between the easier skill and the harder skill. So here we have in the in the yellow, a male performing a double tuck back somersault and a male performing a double layout somersault. And you can see that that the female is very similar to the male in terms of the angular momentum and the flight time. The skill score for a female is much lower than a male. But the ratio between going from a double tuck to a double straight isn't isn't that great. So the difference between going from a double tuck in a female performer and a male performer, it is slightly harder. But does it constitute going from a C compared to an F? So the code of points currently looks like this C to D for males for tuck and double layout and C to F for females. Based on just looking at how much rotational capacity the performer has and how much time in the air, would that look better? I'd suggest it wouldn't. I'd suggest that actually it is more difficult for a female to perform a double layout somersault. So maybe that looks better. So in summary, we've shown that these skills, these biomechanical, these skills are biomechanically different, even though they have the same name. 
and that this could identify anomalies in the code. It could demonstrate that a skill score ratio may allow these different steps between these levels of skill to quantify and program training and also the code of points in a more effective way. By itself, I think it would be wrong to say we use biomechanics solely to, to, to create the code of points. We always have to take into account other things. And I think the history of the sport, expert domain knowledge and other variables need to be taken into account. But I think what this quick snapshot did was allowed us to see that science could actually provide some information to in this. It could also help us decide whether we want to adapt apparatus or codes of points. Changes in apparatus in terms of the vault, we know that the vault changed. Um, and any changes need to be done with caution in terms of safety, history and tradition. But biomechanics can help. It can help develop multi and interdisciplinary approaches to code design. And it also sits well with the ISBS's mission statement of linking science and practice. So I'm going to finish there. I've got a couple of take home messages. So this will only take a couple of minutes and then um, and then we're open for we're open for questions. I think I've gone on um, about roughly about to time. So the take home take home messages are really that coaching knowledge is vital. Understanding and being able to communicate with coaches from a scientific perspective underpins this all of this. Linking that to scientific understanding allows us to identify the most effective technique selection. That drives our ability to identify training drills, skill development and physical preparation. And we need to keep in mind that in order for the gymnast's techniques to emerge and the emergent properties of those characteristics of the interactions of the body segments to create the goal to achieve those, the, those techniques is a combination of the task, the skill, the technique that we know, the gymnast, their morphology, their physiology, and the environment in which they're performing. Ultimately, we want to try and make our performance as adaptive and innovative and stable as possible. So biomechanics can help. It can inform technique selection, it can develop effective drills, and it can help the coach develop a mindset of how skills work, how we can break skills down. But we need to maintain ecological validity throughout our approach. If we don't have that, we'll lose the audience, we'll lose the coaches, we'll lose that, com that communication with the sport. We need to try and strive towards interdisciplinary research, not multidisciplinary, which is a challenge. And I think that's been known for a long time. And we need to address questions from a question specific perspective, look at the question and then decide what the methodology is that we're going to use to answer that question. Just because we're biomechanists doesn't mean that we can't address questions from other perspectives. The biology part of biomechanics is particularly important. Collaborating with the right people, making strategic alliances to address these meaningful questions also underpins all of this. It's tremendously important. And this whole scientific approach is trying to make training more effective. It's trying to make it more efficient and safer. Thank you for your attention. Brilliant. Thanks, Gareth. Um, yeah, really enjoyed that. I think for what you referred to as a quick snapshot, you um, went through really well specific examples. So I like that you kind of 
went through the biomechanics, motor control and coaching of the same skill, but also talked about the um, like the task, the organism and the environment all for the same skill as well. So it was really nice to just see how that all links in, which I guess then tied back to your take-home messages where you kind of showed us exactly how that's done with a few specific examples. So yeah, I really liked that. Thank you. Um, yeah, so just um, have you got the next slide? Oh, sorry. There we go. Ah, yeah, cheers. But yeah, just while I give people a chance for the live stream to catch up, if you've got any questions, just drop it in the live chat on YouTube and I'll read them out. Um, and yeah, just another mention, as Gareth said during the presentation, links to lots of the papers are in the description below the video as well. But have a look on there at what's coming up in the next few weeks, um, going over methods in EMG statistics, some simulation modelling, and also different analysis methods leading up to then the ISBS conference week at the end where the ISBS YouTube channel will have lots of things to interact and engage with as well. But if you want to keep updated, subscribe and click the bell and you should, as I say, get notifications whenever things are updated. Okay, so I think that brings me on to the questions. So we've got a couple on YouTube, Gareth. The first okay. one's from Nadim Youssef, who I know has been watching quite a few of these lectures. So I think you kind of covered this to some extent after the question was posed, but he asks if you could explain the important kinetics and kinematics involved in the execution of gymnastics skills. So I guess because you kind of went over that a bit, maybe if you could just talk about the relative importance of kinetics and kinematics in some of the things that you discussed. Yeah, so so obviously the, when we talk about the kinematics of the of gymnastic skill, we're talking about the shapes and movement patterns, the body positions. Um, we're also interested in the interaction of the joints or the body segments, uh, and that allows us to measure coordination, and that sits sits within this idea of motor control. Um, to the 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 thing that drives what are the key variables in terms of the kinematics and also the kinetics, the forces, the turning forces around the joints, is the task, is the skill that we're trying to perform, and that's the most important thing. You know, the the, the sport of gymnastics dictates that during a, a a cross on rings or during a long swing on high bar, my body is in specific is in a specific shape, and those movement patterns and body positions are achieved by musculoskeletal forces that are interacting with the apparatus to create the right techniques so it's very much down to the task or the skill and you know and and we could look at something more general like landings or impact and say that we're trying to attenuate forces that we experience in terms of loading rates and peak reaction forces and we can change the stiffness of mats etc but um yeah it's there there, there aren't one or two key variables you know there are some important ones angular momentum is always important in gymnastics we're always rotating and um uh but it's the task that drives it so if you know what the task or the skill is then you can go further into understanding what those important kinematics and kinetics are brilliant thank you and then yeah got a couple of questions from holly stock so she said first one is are fig 
using these methods to inform the scoring systems or is this just kind of something you're proposing for future and then the second part of the question was what aspects of timing did you decide were associated with successful female catch-up performance so that so the first the answer to the first question is quite quite simple we we proposed this um quite a few years ago actually and um we uh, were working at the time, we were working with uh, some colleagues, Patria Hume in, the New, Ze- in New Zealand, um, some colleagues in Alberta, in Canada, um, Keith Russell and uh, Pierre Gervais, and um, as well as in the UK. And, and, and we kind of tried to come up with a, uh, a way that the FIG could look at this. Um, the, the, it was presented then to the FIG Scientific Committee when that existed, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, by Professor David Kerwin um, and Peter Brueggemann in 2006. And, but recently I was invited to give a talk at the university in, in Osaka with um, other colleagues from uh, the FIG and, and international gymnastics and um, uh, had a very good talk with the MTC, um, one of the MTC members about looking at this as a, as a way forward in terms of um, making a more i guess reliable and an objective code of points or or having something that is may contribute to it and if it's meaningful and if it's useful then that's that's great and hopefully it would you know it would allow your technique to be understood to a better level and and hopefully keep keep injuries to a minimum and performance to to the right level um so I think that answers that that question. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So yeah, the second part was just which timing aspects were linked with successful female catch of performance. So that so the variables that we focused on in in this particular study were all at the point of release. So when I was showing you the angular momentum characteristics, when I was showing you the moment of inertia of the performer, the the angles of release, these were all these were all selected because they are the, the characteristics that are linked to um, producing the trajectory of the projectile, the athlete in the air. Um, once the athlete has left the bar, their trajectory, their trajectory of their mass center is set, their angular momentum is set. So in terms of timings, um, it was it, that was the point in time that we examined that discrete point. We did, though, look at the um, uh, functional phases. Um, I can't remember... Uh, what they are at the moment because it's it's but it's certainly in the paper um, where we looked at inward and outward Ketchevs. It's one of the papers, um, and there's another paper on the evolution of the Ketchev, um, which is in uh, International Biomechanics 2018, I think, <clears throat> um, and uh, that certainly looks at timings in terms of the functional phase, the the tap swing that we talk about in. in I know that's a bit of an American term, but um, in terms of the going from arch to dish to arch in the Ketchev, those are those characteristics are looked at but um yeah but the key variables ultimately no matter what the gymnast does at that point of release they have to achieve the certain mechanical dictates and we know that that arch to dish is kind of underpins all of that thanks and then yes last question unless any more pop up there's a really good question here when we talk about the interface between biomechanics and coaching um carol d has asked whether there are any tools that coaches can use 
to help them use biomechanics in day-to-day -day coaching. So I guess I guess I'd start from a from a very simple level and say being able to um you being able to understand the shapes and movement patterns that performers undertake to achieve certain skills is the first part. So if we were to look at a female gymnast doing long swings on bars and we saw maybe the three different types of long swings that they do with the the pike down the straddle straddle pike or the arch um you know straight away we see that those there are three techniques that exist that are all being successful and then then the next question is well which one is best for which type of gymnast for the maybe short or the taller gymnast or for the um for the you know slightly heavier or lighter gymnast um but ultimately understanding that um uh, and and observing as much gymnastics as possible kind of underpins a lot of it and i think that's where um, you know, we've we've developed certainly the UK have developed as a nation because we've had access to so much good quality information, just visual information on on what makes skills or what good skills look like. Um, and so, in terms of the first level of tool, first tool is increasing that knowledge of what those movement patterns are. And then the next bit is is kind of understanding and explaining the link between things like how do, how do gymnasts generate angular momentum at takeoff? What are the shapes and movement patterns that actually achieve that? How does the gymnast get into the re re reversal of angular momentum at release of, on the bar? Um, so <clears throat> you've got a conceptual understanding of the skill um, and that is kind of built being built up by, you know, various resources that you can use. And, you know, I think some of the some of the resources that we've produced in British gymnastics. Um, I know I've been working with uh, British gymnastics on their kind of reframing of their coach education program, um, and trying to impart this kind of understanding of conceptual understanding of skill in it. Um, I think as well one of the things that uh, is is highly useful is being able to longitudinally track your athlete so being able to say okay let's look at even if it's a gymnast learning a cartwheel let's look at the cartwheel these are the characteristics these are the shapes and movement patterns we want now i'm going to now track them every time they perform it i'm going to i don't know video five per session over over the year that we're producing it or performing it or maybe a year is too much and that allows you to to understand how these mechanisms are working Biomechanics is kind of a continuum, really. You can go right to one extreme of research and try and understand how muscle fibers work, right to the other end where you've got understanding that if we hit the floor with a certain amount of force, the, fo the floor will exert a certain amount of force back to us. Um, but I think in terms of from a coaching perspective, understanding what the key principles of movement are and then applying that in terms of what are those key functional shapes and movement patterns that we have in gymnastics swinging circling landing those sorts of things so how do they work that would be my that would be my answer thank you and yeah i think i think that advice applies to a lot of sports as well not necessarily yeah. just gymnastics yeah. um yeah and i think just last question i'm going to throw my own one into the mix but just for me if you had a magic wand is there that you could wave is there anything from a coaching or motor control perspective that you wish biomechanists would 
do more or less of in their research, if that makes sense. Yeah, certainly. I think there's a there's a big um, hole in the market. There's a big gap in knowledge about um, how skills develop. Um, and we have studies where we have um, gymnasts learning the long swing, for example. And uh, we're about to publish another study now, uh, me and Carl Neal, on the emergence of coordinative structures. Um, but they're all university students learning it. Um, what we want is how do eight-year-olds learn the cartwheel, the long swing, the, you know, how, how, what is that process of learning at that younger age? And there are lots of theories out there. Um, you know, we've got Bernstein's theories of learning. We've got Carl Newell's theories of skill development, um, as well as things like Fitz and Postner's stuff. But I think that's the longitudinal, longitudinal research is is not done because one it's it's really hard hard work hard to do underfunded and ultimately that's you know Stuart you know as well as I do sport isn't isn't sports science isn't particularly well funded within certain sports and you know I'm, I'm fortunate enough to work uh, across a number of different sports with big governing bodies like FIFA and world rugby and the, and and you know the, the, there's just not the resources to do all of this research so yeah i think if i could have a magic wand i'd get more research that's longitudinal but i also have more interaction with coaches as well i think that's the key thing and, that, and bridge that gap a little bit better and a little bit more funding as well while you've got the yeah, that magic be. wand in your hand brilliant sure. uh, yeah thanks ever so much for that gareth and i know the few comments on youtube thanking you as well for a brilliant lecture so yeah thanks very much and just Quickly, I guess, if anyone does have any more questions, if they're watching this back in the coming days, is there a best way of kind of getting in touch or asking any follow-up questions? Yeah, 100%. If you, if, if you can put my email um, uh, down in, in, in YouTube somewhere, then that's... Yeah, I'll add that to the bottom of the... Below where my, all the papers are. My Twitter, yeah. Twitter account on there as well. And yeah, do that. That's all right. Yeah, brilliant. Oh. Thanks again, Gareth. Yeah, thank you very much. No thank you for putting this together, Stuart. This is, it's, uh, it's really useful. And certainly at this time, I hope everyone stays safe and well. And um, yeah, I look forward to the next talk on the 25th of June um, related to EMG. Thank you.